I'm Anne, co-host of Transparency in Teaching, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned, and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hey, welcome back. Steve here. And today I'm talking with Laurel Schmidt. She is a lifelong educator, teacher, principal, district director, art lover, and writer. She's also the author of a critically acclaimed novel, How to Be Dead, a love story. You're going to love this talk. You're also going to love her novel, How to Be Dead. Thanks for listening. And by the way, it would be so cool if you took a minute after it's over with to go to my website, stephenmaletto.com slash reviews and left review. Could you do that for me? That would be so cool. You're awesome. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the show. You are listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, a podcast for educators helping you help kids achieve their dreams. And now here's Steve with this week's show. Laurel Schmidt is a lifelong educator, teacher, principal, district director, art lover, and writer. She's the author of a critically acclaimed novel, How to Be Dead, A Love Story and four nonfiction books on art, learning, and brain development. She's a nationally recognized expert who has helped thousands of docents and museum educators master the art of leading dynamic inquiry-based conversations that have museum visitors and students longing for more. Laurel also works with the education departments of numerous museums in Los Angeles and New York. She is a consultant to the Museum of Contemporary Art, or MOCA, and co-author of Contemporary Art Start, a curriculum guide to contemporary art and culture, published by MOCA in 1985. It is the centerpiece of an inquiry-based art education program. She is a consultant to the Guggenheim Museum, the Met, and MoMA in New York City, and presents at their annual Teacher Institute on the Arts. She was a member of the Education Advisory Board of the Natural History Museum and served for eight years on the Landmarks Commission in the city of Santa Monica, California. She has published numerous articles in national journals for parents, teachers, and school leaders. However, writing is her lifelong passion. She's the author of Seven Times Smarter, 50 Activities, Games, and Projects to Develop the Multiple Intelligence in Your Child. Gardening in the Minefield, a survival guide for school administrators. I love that title. <laughs> it is so cool. And Classroom Confidential, 50 Things Great Teachers Do Behind Closed Doors and Putting the Social Back in Social Studies. Laurel is also a consultant, university lecturer, and professional development specialist. Laurel received a BA in art from Mount St. Mary's College and a master's degree in art history from California State University in Northridge. Her thesis was on contemporary photorealism. She also studied art history at Oxford University. When not writing, she enjoys painting, reading, watching good films, and happy hour with friends. She lives with her writer husband, Dernford King, in Santa Monica, California. Next Life, Paris. Her blog can be found at check this out, www.sexdrugsandsocialsecurity.com. For more information, check out her website, www.laurelschmidt.com. Laurel, thanks for joining me today. Thanks, thanks for being here and say hi to everybody. Hello, and thank you very much for the invitation. I'm so looking forward to speaking to you and your audience. Well, thanks for being here, and what an awesome book you've written, How to Be Dead. I can't wait to get into it. But before we do that, um, let's first talk about you being a teacher, principal, and such. I mean, what would you like most about working with kids? 
Well, you know, what's interesting is I knew when I was five years old that I wanted to be a teacher. And so it was very, my path was very clear. And I think uh, part of that was because I had a very hungry mind and education was the perfect place for somebody who wanted to learn and learn and keep learning. And so I became a teacher and I was so fortunate because I had wonderful principals who understood me and that I had a very low threshold for boredom. And so every couple of years, I would say, can you please change my job? Can you change my job? Can you change my job? And eventually I taught everything one way or another from kindergarten through university. And I loved it. And what I loved about being in a world with kids is I liked to watch them think. I liked to see how they learn. And it was even tiny kids. If you watch them closely, you can see how they are figuring out the world. And that's really what I wanted to do with my students is to help them figure out the world. And so uh, what I also loved is their optimism, that it's, it's very difficult living in an adult world where there's so much cynicism. But when you go into a classroom, the potential for learning and optimism and curiosity is so immense that you can become, in a way, a new, un, you can re- Uh, So rediscover your youth and your vitality by surrounding yourselves with children in an environment that's all about what can we learn here? What can we discover? So I was incredibly content in the classroom for 23 years. And then I was a late blooming principal. And after that, I was uh, a director for our district. I was in charge of pupil services, which is sort of a catch-all for any Anybody who's having problems with anything in a school, the first person they dial was pupil services. Hello, it's Laurel. How can I help you? Nice. <laughs> so it, it, was a, it was a wonderful, wonderful career. I loved it. That's so awesome. Th- thanks for talking about that. And, and I got to agree with you. You know, there's nothing better. If you create that environment where the kids have the opportunity to just be excited about learning, boy, what can it, it can, I love what you're saying. It really can uh, inspire you as well as uh, just encourage you to be more you know, wanting to find out more about the world around you. And so Absolutely. Cool. It's a wonderful environment for your mind. And that's uh, an interesting thing is what my many, many of my kids have told me after the fact is you taught us how to think. And, um, and so for that, I'm very proud. That's awesome. I love it. I love it. I love it. Uh, okay. Something else I can't let it slide by is you got to mention some of your work with the museums. I mean, that is so cool. I mean, and, and we're talking coast to coast here. So you're, you're not just yeah. happy with one side of the country. You got to be on the other side too. So talk about that. <laughs> well, I was so fortunate and this came out of my teaching as well. My first teaching assignment was in Hollywood, California. We could actually see the Hollywood sign from the playground. Um, in fact, one first grader, you know, he's a little kid. He hadn't learned much about the world yet, but he knew about the Hollywood sign. And one day he said to me, he said, Miss Schmidt, he said, what does the Hollywood sign say? <laughs> and I just love that because it was just this great big kind of icon in his life, but he had no idea that it was actually a word. That's funny. So, so anyway, my school had children who spoke 24 languages. It was like a UN school. And we wanted to teach them all to speak English as fast as possible so that they could progress. And 
So I was tapped to help with this, and I developed a program called Reading, Writing, and Rembrandt. And the, the notion of the program was that these children all come from cultures that have wonderful art. And if we could use art as a centerpiece and something that they all had in common, it would excite them and they'd want to talk about it. And so my job was to take art into all the classrooms and help the kids develop vocabulary and learn to talk about it and then eventually write about the art. But the lucky thing was there was an art museum right across the street. So I was able to hook up with them and we developed a program where the kids got so good at talking about art that they were actually able to lead conversations in the gallery when adults came. And that association led to MOCA and I co-authored the Contemporary Art Start curriculum. And then my colleague at MOCA was tapped to go to the Guggenheim in New York. And so when she went, she invited me to come along on occasion. And ever since then, I've been working and the Teacher Institute that you mentioned is just a wonderful, wonderful experience. Teachers from all over the world come for a, a week to study art in New York, and I get to be the keynote speaker and I get to interact with them. But what they're learning, which is very important, and it, it's all the work that I have done, is they learn to use an open-ended, an inquiry approach, a Socratic method, so that when children and adults look at the art, they don't have to be intimidated they can realize that if they use their own senses and their own background, their own experiences, they can bring that to bear on the art and they can understand art through their own experiences. And so we develop these very rich dialogues about art simply by freeing people of notions about art and letting them realize that, no, they have an intrinsic understanding of what they're seeing. That's so cool. That's so cool. What it, and, and, this is, I mean, to be able to delve into that that world and be the keynote speaker at some of those events, and I, that's awesome. I, that, that's powerful. We gotta we gotta someday just talk about that stuff if we if you have time. I'd love to. It's a big honor for me. I'm always after I meet with the teachers. I'm always so so high because it's just. And I I will be heading in July. I'll be heading back to New York to do that again, and I cherish that opportunity. I can imagine too. Cool. Well, have fun with that and. Uh, Future episode right there. That's what, that's that's what we're going for. Uh, so I gotta I gotta ask you. Your book is is so cool. All right, and the uh, and just right off the bat, the way it starts, which we'll get into a little bit later. But uh, you know, the point is, is that that's just one of those things that I love that when you know, a book kind of grabs you because <laughs> you you're either not expecting or you're kind of like, Oh, it's just kind of a day in the life and boom. Whoa. Hey, Hey, something good. This is not uh, okay. Hang on a second. And, uh, and I love that. I mean, so as we start talking about your book, how to be dead, a love story, do you remember what inspired you to write it? I, I do. And it was interesting because it has a very interesting origin story because I didn't set out to write this book. And I actually didn't set out to write a novel at all. What happened is I was getting close to retirement age. I looked at my mother. She was 90 years old, no sign of stopping. And I thought, I have no idea how she did that. And all I knew how to do was work, like two or three jobs at a time. And so I thought, you know what? I better research this longevity stuff and see if I can figure out how to stay alive. So I started. I was reading, reading books about how to, you know, how to 
healthy aging and and I did lot took lots of notes and I thought I'll write maybe I'll write a blog maybe I'll so maybe someday I'll write something that will help people my age get older and all of a sudden one day the entire project was hijacked by this fictional character who just landed in my head and it was I tell you it was like a meteor hit me in just a split second the title how to be dead the main character, Francis Beacon, and the killer taxi, they were all in my head at once. And I said, I mean, I know I'm a writer. When you get an idea like that, that is a gift. So I grabbed, you know, a pen and paper and scribbled something down so that it wouldn't leave my head like all these other fugitive thoughts that visit me once in a while. And then I sat down to start writing. The first sentence popped out and I was just hooked. And so what happened really was that my quest for longevity turned into a comedy, a thinking person's comedy about the afterlife. That's excellent. That's so cool that uh, it just the, the idea came to you and you had to write it down and say, I got to do something with this. <laughs> I, like I had no choice. I, I, I was seized. I was seized by the idea. And what was so interesting is every, forever after that, when I would sit down the ideas would come. The characters would show up. I had no idea at the beginning how many characters were going to be there. They would just show up and start talking. So I would, I did their bidding. That's awesome. I love it. Yeah. So your main character, and I love this, is Frances Beacon. So could you talk about her name and then what or who she is based on? Sure. Frances Beacon, well, it's interesting because she's a longevity guru. And she says she's going to live to be a hundred and she can teach other people to do it. So in a way she is like a beacon, a light for people to follow. Um, and what she's based on is, well, they say that all writing is autobiography. And I have to say that Francis, I can't deny it. Francis is my doppelganger in many ways, except the safety is off the trigger. She is, uh, she, she's kind of, uh, she's has a mouth on her. She likes to drink. She doesn't take kindly to rules or anything authoritarian or structures. And so of course, when I was, when I was writing about her, I got to act up. I got to say, I, Francis got to say things that I might think, but I would never say. I like that. And, um, but also that I got to look at myself from a safe distance. And that was really important part of this is that Francis was a place where I could examine my life and think about what does it mean and where did I go wrong? Uh, but I could do it with that, the safety of it being a character in a novel. And um, when I was finishing the book, I was finishing it up during lockdown and it was very wonderful to be able to go and be in that place for four or five hours a day. And then, you know, when I was done writing, I would look up and see our sor sorry world. So she's, um, Francis is an apparition of so many things in my life, but at a, at a distance. Love it. That's so cool. That's so cool. And I like the fact that, it, you know, kind of, you see it as kind of giving you permission to be acting out. <laughs> That's nice. So, because she acts out. Um, the uh, it, 
So Francis is faced with an event that happens. It's her death. And then dealing with it in the afterlife. You have kind of a unique vision of this world. Can you share a little bit about it? Absolutely. She, um, well, Francis, as I mentioned, the killer taxi, she, she's being guru, having this wonderful second career and everything is going great. And then she gets distracted. She steps off a curb, steps in front of a taxi, and she's catapulted into the afterlife. And it's, first of all, she's very shocked and she's confused and she's pissed off because this wasn't the plan at all. And then the afterlife is nothing like she'd been told. She studied all these different religions and she knew about purgatory and all kinds of things. And it wasn't like that. It was called the University of the Afterlife. And she was enrolled and she had to take classes that she didn't want to take. And the whole point of the university afterlife, she discovered to her dismay, was that she had to learn the lessons that she had failed to learn in life. And so every time she was enrolled in a class where she thought, oh, well, it might be about this, it might be about that. It was always about, Francis, you need to look at yourself. And in particular, her dilemma in life was that she was afraid to love fully. That's why it's called a love story in a way, and the subtitle, because her fear was if she loved too much, then how would she bear separation? How would she bear being parted from someone? And so she could never invest fully in loving. And in the afterlife, what she learns is that if you really, truly want to experience being human, you have to love. And at the end, when she's, she's subject to this court, I mean, not only does she have this curriculum that she hates, and in fact, she's so bad at it, she becomes a dropout. But there's also this court that is monitoring her progress. And if she doesn't do well in the afterlife, they can condemn her to frigus repono, which is cold storage, permanent cold storage. So she's constantly being monitored and she's surveilled. And she's on the run and she's trying to figure out, how do I do this? And at the very end, when she's called into court, what she says, one of the things that she says, they ask her, so what have you learned, Francis? And she says, I love, therefore I am. And she tells them, she says, it's, it's about, that's what it is about. Being human is about accepting the challenge to love. That's so powerful and so cool and it's neat i mean now you're you're making this happen because you know by the way first of all the whole thing is stepping off the curb i gotta mention this (laughs) i I was not expecting it (laughs) all right it you know so i won't say much more about it but i got it it's just that's a cool part of the book that uh made me have to reread it i was like well wait a second what just happened there (laughs) (laughs) yeah and what's what's good is it's not you're not really creating a spoiler alert because it happens on page five. So it's right up front. The rest of the story is all in the afterlife. Yeah. So I have to, I have to say that because I got to tell you kudos because you, you know, I was, I, I was feeling what she was feeling. Just, you know, focused on the stuff she's thinking about and boom, you know, nice taxi. Very nice. All right. So, but I I just love the way you had created this and the, the court and the university thought and the and the gentleman that she meets first who explains everything to her and uh um i just love it it's good stuff i 
what I got to ask you is, would you say that there is a point to what you have Francis experience? I mean, all, all the way to the end. I mean, are you trying to tell your readers something? Are, are you trying to get them that message? I think, yeah, there is a message to the book. Um, you know, James Baldwin said, live all you can. It's a mistake not to. And Frances, when she's talking to the court, says, love all you can. It's a mistake not to. And from the perspective of someone who is retirement age and looking out at my peers and my friend group, um, that really the message of this book is that it's time. This time is precious. And right now in your life is not the time to hold back. You need to liberate yourself from the gaze and the judgment of other people. You need to be willfully and persistently passionate and even dare to be spectacular. That, and you should love yourself. Above all, you should love yourself. The, um, you can just... One of the things that the message of the book, which is it's very much, even though it's called How to Be Dead, it's actually about how to, how to be alive. And um, what I've concluded after all my study of longevity and Francis, her saga, is that you can live a lot in a short time or you can live very little in a long time. And it's a choice. And that we need to invest ourselves in every day, because if not now, when? And I think one of the great lessons, sadly, of the pandemic is just that, that we don't know how long we have. We don't know what our life is going to look like, but all we have in front of us is that one day, and that we need to make the most of that. And that's the message of how to be dead. It's just awesome because it's the message comes through loud and clear, and it is something that it really starts making you think as she's dealing with the different stuff. I don't know about others, but I can tell you that me as a reader, I started thinking, huh, <laughs> you know, I've started to contemplate things because, you know, I'm on the boat where you're talking about. I, I could have, uh, this is my uh, 36th year. I have no intention of slowing down, uh-huh. but I've started my 36th year, and I'm, I, you know, I'm going on. I'm, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I have colleagues who, when they got to year you know, 25, they're going, okay, if I do this, that, and the other, I may be able to, you know, and I'm like, no, blew that by, but I, so you, your book really spoke to me, I guess is my point. Oh, thank you. Good. It is, it is because what happens is if you invest in every day, you're alive, you are truly alive and you have the potential to feel and learn and expand and grow. We know this from science neurogenesis you can grow new brain cells every single day and i think you can grow new heart cells every day if you embrace life and say there's more here there's more here how can i develop this what can i do who can i love better what can i learn that that's that's the um beauty of being alive Excellent. I love it. I, you know, one of the things that's really cool is that in, in Kirkus Reviews, this was said, and I think this is so awesome, I, an unexpectedly touching laugh-out-loud afterlife adventure. How did it make you feel that your book received this commentary through Kirkus Reviews? Well, I was thrilled, and um, I was surprised at first because, of course, it is my debut novel, and also because with the title Dead in it, 
No, there, it was a bit of a risk because people are not fond of that word dead. And so people might with, withdraw simply because it was off-putting to them. But I do think that the pandemic had something to do with its warm reception because suddenly people could not ignore the idea of mortality. It was all around us. Loved ones were being snatched from the face of the earth. And so people really had to think about um, what, what about my life? What about the afterlife? And they started wondering about it. Maybe some of them have started wondering about the afterlife just as a place to seek comfort. And then along comes this book that they say is a laugh out loud afterlife adventure. And so once people got inside the book, they found out that they had this very funny, quirky, feisty guide to the afterlife. And so it made it safe for them to explore that idea. That's so awesome. I, you know, it's uh, cause it's, you know, it, there's always this fascination. I mean, it's, it's just like, you know, whatever it, it is, whatever you think about it, with uh, um, things that could have been or should have been or something like this or what might have been. I mean, I'm a historian. You know, if I go into a house that's been around forever, you know, I, I get in there and I start thinking about all the people that have been different places or touched that railing or whatever. Right. I love vinyl LP albums. And, you know, one of the things that's really cool is when I buy used ones, um, thinking about, you know, if it's from the forties or fifties or sixties or seventies, you know, it's like how many people, you know, somehow this survived to this, this time oh. frame, And, uh, you know, and, and you think about stuff like this and, you know, of course, you know, if you die, you don't take that with you. <laughs> and, uh, but I, you know, I just, I think about stuff like this a lot and it was really cool that, uh, you know, the woulda, shoulda, couldas and all kinds of things like what, what if we'd done this or whatever. And, um, you just, I just, really got into that message. And I think it's, it's, uh, it's powerful and, and it's fun. The way you've written is just, it's fun. So, and I like it. Your characters are awesome. And, uh, this is, this is good stuff. And so your, your review and from Kirkus is well-deserved. Thank <laughs> so you. The, uh, um, and you know, one of the things you're talking about, I mean, when you look at the number of books and movies, I mean, people have a f fascination with the afterlife, but I think you're so right with how, you know, we've, the pandemic just had probably, probably ramped that up a little bit. I mean, yeah. do you think there's something that people just kind of have this hope that there's um, more to it than what they think, or that there's something, you know, even the ones who want to say, yeah, pshaw. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, let's talk a little bit more about that. You've mentioned some of this about, you know, getting into the idea of, uh, the, inter the idea of interest, you know, being interested in the afterlife. I mean, what do, what do you think about that? Well, I think something, one reason that human beings are so fascinated with the idea of the afterlife is because we're basically very egotistical creatures and it's hard to imagine ourselves not existing. And so, I mean, really? I won't be here? And so we make up stories uh, to say, no, it isn't so. I mean, when you look at the Egyptians, they built those amazing pyramids, which are just basically huge, very elaborate testimonies to their belief that, no, you don't die. You go on. There's this afterlife. And we want that. I think as human beings, it's just so natural to want more, whether it's to live longer in this life or to be promised 
something afterward. And the idea of reincarnation, which of course is part of Frances's journey, is to grapple with notions of reincarnation and to pray that she gets to reincarnate. Um, the re notion of reincarnation is so attractive because we get a second chance. We get to come back again and try it all over again. And maybe this time we'll be famous or we'll be brilliant or we'll be a wonderful mom or dad or we'll be happy. And in Frances's case, she, if she can manage to learn to be dead, then she can have a second chance at true love. And this is her whole goal is she, she has to master the afterlife so that she can reincarnate and be reunited with her true love. That's so excellent. Uh, great stuff. I, you know, your book, how to be dead, a love story is just, it, it's fun. It's, it's different and it's, it does make you laugh and it does make you cheer on the character and make you want to want things to happen. Right. <laughs> and uh, it's kind of cool. Cause you know, just a little, you know, has an attitude is, is the right thing to say, I think. So, you know. Feisty. She's feisty. Feisty. I yes. like that. Yes, I, she is. I like that. Snarky. I think someone called her snarky. Snarky. Nice. I like that. That's uh, good stuff. I, You know, I, you've written other books, but this is your first novel. I mean, could you share a little bit about writing a novel versus writing a nonfiction book? Because I would think that some of those other books you don't have a snarky character in. <laughs> no, no, maybe me. Ah. No. <laughs> Garden, gardening in the minefield, the survival guide for school administrators. I think there might be some snark in that. Gotcha. Anyway, re when I set out to write, and once I realized, oh, I have a novel on my hands, I also realized, oh, I have a lot of learning to do here. Um, so there was a steep learning curve at first because I had to learn really storytelling, structure. I studied a lot about structure. I found some really good writing teachers. And so I had to master that part. And, um, and then the second challenge was this jumble of, jumble of ideas that just pours into your head. And so then I had to spend time weeks sorting it out and figuring out where does this go? Where does that go? And what I learned is that if you're doing this kind of work, it takes high tolerance for ambiguity. We just have to sit with it and be, believe that you will figure out the way. And then the third part that was very challenging and wonderful at the same time was to have the courage to tell the truth. Um, that this novel is based on my own life experiences and um, you know, family crack-ups and misguided love affairs and grief and loss. And it's very rich material, but you have to have the courage to look at it and, and then to say it out loud. Um, I, and sometimes it's very cathartic. There were times when I was uh, writing through the tears. That's so cool i i can imagine i you know it, it when you talk about some of the scenes some of the things going on uh thinking about how you know you got to pass this class <laughs> to see if you've learned a lesson so you might maybe you can go back i mean all that would really make you start thinking about some of that stuff because i know i know like when i've watched you know movies where they for some reason they 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 or read a book where they have the ability to talk to somebody who's been long gone 
and mm. uh, and either they help them through something or something like that, or you know whether they're really there or not. You never know, but it it always makes me think, ah, yeah, that, that's so cool, and you know you, you get that mm. sort of feeling in some of some of your words too. Is the idea that's like you're talking about it, getting a second chance, or you know, getting through the mistake you made before, not doing it again, or whatever. So. Yeah, yeah, and it was also very interesting writing a novel versus writing the nonfiction books. Is that I am a little bit like a bower bird. I mean, they're, it's a wonderful bird, and they collect beautiful little uh, shiny bits of things, and they decorate outside their nest. And all through my life, I've collected small bits of something beautiful—a painting, or a snatch of conversation, or an idea. And I have this whole apartment in my head where all this stuff was stored. And so when I started writing, I was actually able to bring a lot of that to the, to the character and to the novel. And there were times when a conversation that I heard 30 years ago, the words fit perfectly into the mouths of the characters. So um, it was like a great mosaic of things that I was able to bring together. And that was a kind of very, very rich creative experience that uh, doing writing a novel uh, provides. I loved it. That's cool. That's cool. Cause I, you know, just, just the different feelings you'd have to have as you're doing the different, cause I, I can imagine like you're talking about the, the, the book about reliving the thoughts about being a principal <laughs> had to, <laughs> you had to have some of that, that sort of stuff coming through or some of your emotions and things. And absolutely very, it was very cathartic. I can imagine. So I can imagine that kind of helped you too, as you're preparing to, to write this novel, but good stuff. I mean, it, your, your novel's awesome. I, I, before we go, do you have a, could you let everyone know where they could connect with you, learn more? Uh, they can just go to my website, laurelschmidt.com, um, and you can click on contact. You can read about, you know, me and um, and my, my AOL address is there. I'd be happy to hear from any educators or art people. Um, I'm in dialogue with people, a lot of people around the world, and uh, it's part of wonderful part of the profession is to be connected that way. That's so cool. Uh, awesome. Well, I'll put those in the show notes so they can see your website there and they can easily reach out to you that way. So good Lovely. Stuff. Lovely. Thank you. Yeah, I got two more questions for you, Laurel, and they're just uh, questions I like to ask my guests. And the first one goes like this. How do you keep going when so much is going on that you may want to quit? Well, there are two parts to that. Uh, how do I keep going as a writer? Um, because sometimes writing is you're stuck and there's a lot going there's a lot going on. It's like gridlock in your head. And you think, Oh, I I can't do this. I can't do this. And, but once you get your fingers on the keyboard and uh, the blockade is opened, it's so satisfying. It's so deeply, deeply satisfying to be writing just the act of writing um, that that is how I keep going is I tell myself, remember, you love this, just sit down. You love this. And it'll come. Um, but keep going. The other part is about keeping going in the world. And I think this is really important for all your educator listeners is it's hard to be a teacher. It's hard to be an educator. People in the education field are first responders. And they have always been first responders, even though no one called them that. And it's a hard, hard job. And I think the thing that will maybe keep other people going and certainly helps me 
to think about it is the influence that you have on the future. Every act, every day, when you are in contact with children, with learners, with students, you are putting your fingerprint on the future. And I know this because I am in contact with some of my students and they tell me what happened to them because they were in my class. One of my students became teacher of the year in the Big Apple. And in her application, she wrote about me and how she learned to become a teacher. One of my students is a writer and she's in television and she told, she's told me and written in her books that Laurel was the first person who recognized me as a writer. So you have influence on the future and you have to have faith in that even when it's hard to keep going. Wow. That's awesome information. Cause I love, I love what you're saying there. Cause that is, it's, this is a note I got to, first of all, there's a lot of where that question's coming from is a chance to hear from other people. Cause there's a lot of them that want to quit <laughs> and uh, cause they feel overwhelmed and such. And there's, it's just that if they can think about what it is that they do <laughs> to get through that stuff so that they can then make that impact that they do. And I think it's that others, you know, I just, Oh, cool. I love your answer. Thank you so much. Uh, last question. Do you have a teacher in your past who made a difference in your life? If so, who was it? And what would you say if given the chance to say thank you? I do. It was Sister Joan. I was, uh, I had Catholic school education and Sister Joan, who is really, her name is Joan Hayes. She's no longer a nun, but she was a, a fearsome, um, ferocious wonderful teacher and I had her for senior English and she taught us to think and she taught us to write and her approach was that she gave us at the beginning of the year she gave us a huge book list she said read these books read them in any order you want but every week show up having read a book and on Friday she would teach us teach us teach us all week literature thinking writing and all but on Friday we would come in and there would be an open-ended question on the board and no matter what book you read that week, you had to answer that question. And so you had to suddenly take this big, open, kind of interesting philosophical question and apply it to your book and write an essay in 45 minutes. And that happened week after week after week. She taught us to write and think, thank you, Sister Joan. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you. That's so cool. Uh, you know, Laurel, thank you so much for talking with me. How to Be Dead, A Love Story is an awesome read. From the very start, the reader is grabbed and yanked into this awesome world. You won't want to put it down. You want to stay and root for Francis Be Beacon. Uh, you know, thank you for sharing. I wish you the best in all you do. Thank you so much. It was a delight. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is excited to be a member of Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio. Your voice is right here. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. The opinions expressed on Teaching Learning Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions for classroom teachers and school administrators. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll share it with your friends.